from Vinepairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sharino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday Vinepair Podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That little mm, yeah, that was good. That was good. Yeah, What's going on, I love everybody? The apps. They're so fun. Yeah, the fri- you know. Do you guys ever listen to other podcasts and you're like, oh, this is so annoying that they do this on the po- this podcast. I hope we don't do it on our podcast. No, and I never also said other podcasts and be like, oh, this is so annoying. You know what I'll do? I'll comment on the podcast <laughs> page and say, mm-hmm, that's really annoying that someone mm-hmm does that. You know what? Get a life. We're trying. Get a life. We're doing our best. <laughs> you know, I just, I've never been like a complainer like that. Like also people that like tweet complaints, you know, I'm just I like. I think you reserve your complaints for the podcast. Go to customer service, bro. On air. Do you know that the meme that I love is like the way that people actually talk to a customer service representative is their real personality. Yeah. I think that's accurate. It's pretty accurate. You should yeah. hear my Canadian husband talk to a customer service. He's probably service. so nice. He's like, I'm going to be so mad. And then he gets on the line. He's, he's the most polite person you've ever heard. He's like, hi, how you doing? Yeah. No, he's just like so polite in dealing with people. I mean, I, I think it's like, it's worthwhile, you know? You don't want to go to your permanent record. <laughs> I, I have a story to tell because this is one of the great moments in my life, I feel like. Oh, so, oh okay. It, it started out terribly, but, but worked out okay. So I was flying down to... Columbia for my best friend's wedding. Uh, his wife is from Columbia. And so the wedding was there. And I had a wedding to go to the next weekend in Des Moines, Iowa. So to make all of this work, I had booked possibly the single most preposterous itinerary that anyone has ever flown, uh, which involved me flying from Seattle to Fort Lauderdale to uh, Medellin to Cartagena, where we were going after the wedding, back mm-hmm. to Medellin to Fort Lauderdale to Dallas to Des Moines back to no to Chicago then to Seattle yes and the problem was uh, right from the outset so uh, of course to do this also I had to fly several different airlines because there was no way to do it all on one airline and the problem was right away leaving Seattle somehow I was the person despite having a ticket I was the person who was like deprioritize i'm not really sure what happened i was basically never given a seat assignment and then i'm sitting there waiting as the plane fills up they're like oh well uh well yeah you know we'll let you know blah 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 and uh suddenly there's like no one left waiting except me and then they're closing the doors and i'm like excuse me like (laughs) that's my plane you sold me a ticket for that plane i'm unclear what's going on here and this is when i learned that you know they'll just oversell flights and then if too many people show up then someone gets fucked which was (laughs) me and um i was really really angry in part because like i'm trying to fly to another country for a wedding i'm not just like flying to fort lauderdale for fun nothing against fort lauderdale yeah I love Fort Lauderdale was the destination. And I got really, really angry. And then I was like trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do. And then I was like, okay, wait, let's step back. You're at this point, like I'm working as a server and somebody in restaurants. I'm like, you understand how customer service works. I'm like, let's go like ask these people how they can help me instead of like yelling at them, which is probably what 95% of people do in this situation. And I went up and I was went back to the counter. I was like, look, my best friend's wedding is in Columbia in two days. I need to get there. How can you guys help me? And then all of a sudden it was like the supervisor came and like we went back to their like office and we talked about it. And they're like, okay, well, here's what we can do. We can get you on another flight to Miami and then we get you on a flight to to Medellin. You know, we'll do this. You know, we'll give you uh, like, you know, some some vouchers and also write you a check. You know, like your flight's going to be leave Seattle in like 12 hours. So he's like, you know, you're going to get there later. I'm sorry. I can't help that. And I was like, look, this is fine. You solved the problem for me. Like, I, you can't make the plane come back and kick someone else off and, like, get me on there. I get it. That's fine. But 
it was this reminder to me that like, you know, in the end, yelling and screaming can be cathartic, but in a way, but it is very ineffective at getting you the thing you might want in the end, which is for me was getting to Columbia in as timely a fashion as was possible. So I take that lesson to heart. But you know what I've heard where I've heard like yelling and screaming does work? <laughs> My friends claim who are surgeons that it works on the like in surgery, if you like, because the surgeon, the, there's like this myth in medicine that like the people that have accidents on that brain table are always the nicest people. Like, thank you so much. And then he said, they say that all the time. like, well, great. Something's going to go wrong today. But the people that are like really hard to deal with, it almost like puts everyone in the operating room on edge. <laughs> so, so no one fucks up. Yes. Yeah, so no one fucks up. Something I've always thought about. Anyways. <laughs> let's, uh, good, good job, though, Zach. Yeah, thank you. Job, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, Zach, you got today's uh, Friday topic. What, what's, what's going on, buddy? Yeah, well, I got I found a really fascinating trend uh, that I think is, is – I was blown away by this statistic when I saw it. And basically, the, the statistic is connected to champagne. And we've talked a lot about champagne recently because it's having such a great – stretched kind of in 21 and now into 22. But one of the really fascinating things is that this um, data shows that actually, despite what you might think, and despite what's talked about in the champagne category in a lot of places, the actual percentage of the of market share that's held by by vigneron, by people who grow and vinify their mm-hmm. own wine, so growers, as we would describe them in the champagne world, is actually shrunk dramatically since 2000. So in 2000, that represented they represented 26% of the market share. Now they represent 18%. And co-ops, which also are a part of production, have stayed essentially constant in that period of time, around 9%, which means that now the Maison, the big producers, control something like 73% of the market as opposed to 66% in 2000. And mm-hmm. this, is, this stunned me because so much of the conversation around champagne you know, certainly in the press and sommelier circles, et cetera, is all about or almost entirely about grower champagne. That's what's trendy. That's what's popular. That's what's exciting. And yet as a category, it's diminishing in importance or at least in market share. Mm-hmm. And that fascinates me. I have some thoughts about this, but I wanted to get your guys' thoughts first. So kind of were you surprised when I shared this stat with you? And like, what do you think we can attribute it to? I mean, well, please, Joanna. No, I was just going to say, I don't think a lot of people know about <laughs> grower champagne, yeah. and that's probably a big part of, big part of this, right? Like most of the con- wine-consuming public probably knows champagne houses. They're most familiar with them, um, the bigger ones especially. And, and I think, you know, we see this all the time in food and drinks media and public publishing, but uh, what we, what feels like trendy and big to us often doesn't really translate or work its way to the the larger public. Yeah. Um, so it feels like it's all in, you know, it's totally encompassed our world and the industry. But I think outside of that, probably very few people know about this trend. I think that you're spot on here. I think champagne. So one thing I learned this la- this summer or spring when I was in champagne that I didn't know actually was that to be actually even considered a grower champagne, you have to own 100% of the land that the, the grapes come from. And then you make, so like literally you own the land, you farm the grapes, you make the wine, right? It's not enough to have farmed someone else's land. You have to own it. Yeah. Right. So I think, first of all, that's really hard because land in Champagne is very expensive. And so I think partly potentially, who knows, we haven't, you know, I have nothing to back this up, but I think that it could be very lucrative to sell that land right now to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially as houses are growing. Um, 
I think also, save for a few of the really like baller, 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 baller champ like grower brands, like Solos, basically. Right. There, the the branding behind Grower Champagne isn't does not go in line with the branding behind Champagne. Yeah. Champagne is a luxury product, right? And you look baller when you're popping Dom and Krug and you know. So long. Piper Heidzik, you know, all the Billicart, all these, right? You don't look that baller popping domain something, something that no one's ever heard of before and posting on Instagram and it says champagne in really small letters, but it was just as expensive as the other ones. And for the most part, when people are popping champagne, they want to look baller. They want to look luxury. They're trying to connect to luxury in some way and fashion. That's just what champagne is. But isn't that idea kind of contradictory to what grower champagne Champagne is meant to be. Well, grower champagne is meant to be like kind of for small. the growers. Yeah, exactly. exactly but, but I think right? that's, I don't think people buy it that, for that reason. Cause it's like, yeah. but if I'm paying, because grower champagne is still, it's pretty expensive. Yeah, that's, no? that's also like exactly one of the things that I've always like had an issue with, with grower champagne. I don't have an issue with grower champagne to be fair. I like grower champagne. My issue with the way that press has always like tried to spin it or wine professionals is like, it's the cheaper champagne option. I find that very, very bullshit. <laughs> like it's almost as expensive, if not the exact same price. So I mean, so I'm sorry. Solos is fucking insane yeah. in price. Like yeah. it's not cheaper. It's not more affordable. You're not the smarter consumer. Like you're just not. But is the idea that you're supporting the growers? But you're supporting landowners. Let's like let's actually have that real conversation. You have to own. You have to be rich enough to own the land to grow the grapes to make. The, the, I think the American idea of what grower champagne is is fucking idiotic because we're stupid because we don't actually look we don't actually think we don't do we don't study like the way that grower champagne has been promoted to the majority of americans is this way that you're saying joanna's like oh you're supporting the farmer no you're supporting a landowner well i think it's also that there is this idea that's often kind of put out there by people who are advocates for grower champagne and other wines in this general category which is it has a it's more authentic right right oh oh yeah you know, the grapes aren't being purchased and vinified by some massive champagne house. It's some guy in his backyard, you know, that's where his vines are. And, you know, he and his family make this wine and it's, it has a, an authenticity and a purity to it that no grow that no big house champagne can match. And like, miss me with that kind of bullshit for the most part. Like I, again, I think it's fine if a grower wants to, you know, make champagne and bottle it and sell it and try and do all that fine. But I think one of the things that's happened in the category is it's also become incredibly oversaturated. You know, when when grower champagne first hit my radar in the mid 2000s, there were a dozen or so brands you could find in Seattle. You know, there were not hundreds of different growers all producing wine, all exporting it to the US, all hoping to capitalize on this. What as it turns out is maybe even a non-existent trend. But like now the problem is that with the exception of a few, and I wouldn't say just Solos, Pierre Peters, there's a few others that have really kind of emerged to be well-known grower champagnes. But even they are not as well-known, obviously, as the big champagne brands, but but they have a brand identity to some extent, and they do fine for themselves. But all the others... You know, it's they're 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 kind of an indifferentiated mass, and it's as a consumer, you not only don't know what they're going to taste like, you don't know what they're going to be like. Even as a professional, I don't know that when I try ones that are new. But you're also subjected to a very real fact about champagne, which is the reason why one of the main reasons why the 
architecture of champagne production has always been centered around the big houses is because making champagne is time consuming, difficult and expensive. And the honest truth is that most growers, even if they are landowners, and again, landowners in Europe are a little different than landowners here in the US, because in some of these cases, you know, that land was acquired hundreds of years ago. It's not like someone bought it two weeks ago. But still, there are obviously, you know, there's some generational wealth that comes with owning land anywhere. But the point is, a lot of those people are just not positioned to have the experience, the equipment, the time, and the money to put into producing high-quality sparkling wine. And just because they happen to grow great grapes does not mean that they are great winemakers. Like Those things are not inherently connected, especially with something that's so process-intensive like sparkling wine, like champagne. And so to me, the the real problem that I've seen, and, and I would be curious if we do have listeners who know more about this, um, you know, are directly connected, perhaps are even in France, uh, podcast at vinepair.com, please get in touch. I would wonder if there aren't any number of grower producers who have been really, in a way, kind of sold a bill of goods. They've decided that, hey, look, we grow great grapes. We are, we're in a Grand Cru vineyard or something. We have a long history of selling to big houses. You know, they pay us pretty good money for our grapes, but we recognize that, if we're able to build a brand for ourselves and sell and make our own wine, we can make more money than just by selling the grapes. And they feel like, you know what, we've gone down this road and it turns out that, you know, whatever, we're not able to make wine at the quality that we want. It's very hard to enter the American market or the global champagne market, whatever. It's not working, but because grower champagne has a sort of ethos to it, an ideology behind it, not just a purely commercial interest behind it. You know, are those people feeling trapped by that? I'm very curious to know. I don't have any specific examples. So this is just, you know, conjecture at this point. Right. Yeah. I feel like, you know, Grower Champagne basically just exists. I put it in Slack when we were talking about this topic. I feel like it exists for like psalms and wine nerds. Yeah. Like, I mean, even if you look at like the the Grower Champagne we have here, because we're both about to drink one, like it says, you know, how many hectares the, the grapes come from when the, this one says when the vineyard was planted how much dosage when it was disgorged like it's just and i think that's what geeks want whereas like you know Krug's like this fucking Krug. <laughs> like i'm sorry you <laughs> they know they like, provide some of that information but yes yeah i mean they do if you scan their barker that they're very into that but you know it's not it's not as much just right there on the label and there's i think there's a lot more label space for that and this is one of these like you know, like Grower Champagne is for the people in wine who are the Jack Blacks of the music world, right? You know, we've all seen High yeah. Fidelity. We know when Jack Black's like, oh, have you heard of this band? And of course you haven't, but some people have. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the person who wants to, like, that. the person who's posting this. It's the flex. Right. It's the flex of, like, I know this champagne. I know it's baller because I know so much about this one very small world area of champagne and the only people who also know about it are the people that I want to associate with that is a lot of what happens in grower champagne and that's also very intimidating to a normal consumer yeah yeah and so the normal consumer is like you know screw it man like I realize I really you know I like Charles Heidzik and like that's what I'm gonna drink or I like Paul Roger or mm-hmm. any of these other you know Tottenjay all these great brands that also exist and that are big houses that they can find everywhere that, you know, can become their house champagne or whatever you want to call it for people who like to drink champagne. And, yeah. you know, I the think that's why. The exclusivity of it as well, right? And it's hard yeah. to find. You know, it's hard to find. It's it's like, I don't know, even even when I was in Rance, 
into the spring and I went to this one wine shop that specializes in only grower and it's owned by a bunch of growers. So like mm-hmm. it's I think it's owned by like have you been there, Zach? I have not, no. It's owned by like forty or fifty growers. So they only oh, sell wow. their wines there mm-hmm. and like every day like one grower is being featured and all this stuff. But even then it's like really intimidating because I only recognize two or three of them. They don't have the big growers because they they're even like more I don't know, like, they think they're even better than the the big growers. I think, sure. like, it's funny, like, you're in Champagne and people are like, shit-talking Salos. You know, they're like, oh, that guy. Because yeah. they're jealous, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. Haters come, you know, haters come. When you're the top, the I haters believe, come. I believe and so, <laughs> they, they gonna hate is yeah, that. Is you thing. know, bring the hate. Anyways, so I think that, like, what happens with these, these smaller producers is – I think a lot of it, what you're saying, Zach, is really interesting because, like, yeah, I do think that they feel this pressure then to, like, market the wines. They don't really know how. It costs a lot of money, but they were told that this was the way to go. Yeah. They buy into all this stuff. <sighs> and I want to make one thing clear here, too. <laughs> I think we all would agree that there's no – like, it's totally great that these wines exist. I think for anyone who is a grower who wants to produce their own champagne, fantastic. Do it. Yeah. But I think that the important note here is is that – as Adam said, even well-meaning people, maybe people who aren't, you know, so obsessed with inflating their own ego through exclusivity, but even just well-meaning psalms, wine pros, journalists, etc., need to take this these statistics to heart and recognize that Grow Champagne is a niche category and it will probably always remain there. And if your only point of connection to people through Champagne is small growers that the vast majority of consumers and many wine professionals will be unfamiliar with, you're doing it wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't know about them. You shouldn't enjoy them. Fine. Great. But when you are trying to kind of come to the average wine drinker and say, oh, all that champagne that you drink that you love is actually crap. And the really good stuff is this weird shit that I know about that you've never yeah. heard of. That's that's like, you know, only I can find like you sound like an asshole, even yeah. if you're not one. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. All right. Let's uh, drink. So we both have some grower champagnes here. So we have one and you have one. What do you have, Zach? I have one of my favorite bottles. Uh, it is a gross champagne. And it's actually, I think, a great example for why I do think there's a place for this category because it's a very unusual style of champagne. Uh, this is uh, Jean Vassel's uh, Will de Pedrix, which I've actually think mentioned on the podcast once before. It's a uh, rosé champagne, but it's made not the way that most rosé champagnes are made through blending um, still white and red wine, but instead through direct press. So like a lot of rosé you would find in places that are famous for rosé like Provence um, and then made into a sparkling wine. So um, a very kind of unusual style, but I really, really love it. It's got a beautiful kind of um, color to it. The The name is the Eye of the Partridge, which I guess partridges have sort of a orangish colored eyes. I have never stared into the eyes of a partridge, I'll be honest. <laughs> Only but, in a pear tree. Yeah, well, you know, only one day a year, um, or actually twelve. I guess you get the you get that one all twelve times. Anyhow, so yeah, that's what I have. What do you guys have? So I've never had this champagne before. Me neither. Neither is Joanna. We didn't buy it. Tim McCurdy did. So, uh oh, oh, he did us a favor and bought this for us. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> so, um, so we have Champagne Vincent Charlotte okay. La Dune. It's vineyards planted in 1955, imported by Jenny and Francois Selections. Oh, boy. Okay. So some natural <laughs> champagne here. Yeah, natural champagne. Apparently, it's not too funky, though. I, I, can't, believe that, I can't believe that uh, secondary fermentation, not just, uh, you know, uh, pet nat is allowable by in, under natural wine <laughs> law. Let's see. Here we go. Here we go. Woo! Whoa, oh, it's exploding. Shit. It's exploding everywhere. All over the studio. It exploded all over the studio. <laughs> Natural. At least it wasn't me. 
Wow. No, keep it rolling, Keith. This is good. He's like, should I stop it? I'm like, no, nah, man, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm soaking wet in champagne and I'm going to pour some and we'll clean it up later. Of course, when you spill something. Oh, like when you spilled something, Joanna? I only spill bright red things in the studio. Yeah, well. Dirty uh, Shirley's in the grown. As everyone knows, my closet's now bright red, so. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. You got you to go with the Negroni closet. That's fine. Um, wow. Smells all like spilled champagne. It okay, has, it actually it has some color to it. Interesting. Like, do you want to, what what color sorry, are we talking what about color? here? It's like amber. It's amber. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. It's like amber. Okay. Hmm. Ooh, it's like tart apples. It's not for me. <laughs> Joanna, thoughts? Yeah, it's got some. It's yeah, it's got some apple notes. Some it's pretty grape juicy. Very me. grape juicy. Yeah, and it's mm. it it has a little bit of a funk to it. I, there's something in champagne that reminds me of Tootsie Pops. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and it's got a little bit of that going on too. Tootsie Roll. It's Tootsie Roll, <laughs> but you know, Tootsie Pop. I mean, yeah, it's. It's interesting. It's I like I don't hate it. I don't it. hate it. Yeah. It's just like not. I guess when I said not for me, it's like I wouldn't. I wouldn't again seek this out. I would never remember this bottle. But mm-hmm. I think that's that's what we're talking about with Grosch Champagne. Is it's hard to remember anyways. So yeah. some of these producers are really hard to remember. I think also like you know you're talking about Pierre Peters. Mm-hmm. I think part of it's it is a good champagne. It's a great champagne, but like also Pierre Peters is very easy to remember. Yeah, you know, it's like the like simplest Solos French name you're ever going to come across. I, yeah, I know Solos. Is right, they're easy to remember. Mm-hmm. Like consumers need that, you know, like they need things that are easy to remember. And if it's hard to remember, like I'm just never going to remember like Vincent Charlotte Ladoon. Like maybe I'll maybe I'll remember it again. Maybe I won't. Like. You know, I just, yeah. yeah no. Well, and I think the last thing I want to say here is there's also a real risk for some of these producers in another way, which is that, as we discussed before, the price point for these wines is high. And if yeah. someone is like, eh, or underwhelmed, the feeling that you get when you open a $40 bottle of champagne and it's not very good or you don't like it that much is a way bigger bummer than opening a $15 bottle of Cava or Prosecco or yep. Cremant or whatever. Uh, you know, a 15 to $20 bottle. And if those are like, eh, you might be like, okay, well, I don't know, or maybe I'll buy it again. It was okay. Or like add some orange juice. Yeah, exactly. But when you spend 40, 50, $60 retail, or God knows how much uh, at a wine bar or at a restaurant or whatever on an expensive bottle of, of any champagne, but especially with grower champagne, where I think there is more just room for variation from bottle to bottle and producer to producer and vintage to vintage, et cetera. That is such an off-putting experience for people that I think it turns people off from the category entirely. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I think you're totally right here. I mean, I think, you know, the, the problem the, – the, what the big houses have going for them is, like, marketing allows consumers to convince themselves of anything, right? So even if you may not like a bottle of, like, Dom Perignon or Krug or whatever <laughs> – I mean, I love Krug. Loser. <laughs> loser. <laughs> uh, get in loser. We're going to drink Krug. Uh, you know, I think you convince yourself it's awesome because the brand is just so famous that you're like, it must be me. Like, this has right. to be awesome, right? <laughs> Crystal, it must be me. Like, until you get to, a, like, a level in your wine journey where actually the cool thing to do is reject those brands, <laughs> right? Like, it's funny how that happens, right? It's like oh, you, sure. you, you think you have to love them. You then love them. Then you become such a nerd 
or a psalm that you then reject <laughs> and hate them. Not, I'm not, you know what I mean. I don't mean I it that do. way because I think there's a lot of psalms actually do really love Crystal and Dom and are like really great. They sure love selling them. I love selling them, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think you know that's that's the thing, and and so for most consumers, it's just it's a lot easier to say, oh yeah, like it's Vuv. I love Vuv. Vuv is great. Then this wine that we're drinking where, you know, you might be like, oh, I don't really think I like it, but fuck, I spent a lot of money. It's just, you know, it's harder. It's harder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you have any favorite grower champagnes and ones that we should check out that you think we can find, hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. We would love to check them out. And Joanna and Zach, we'll chat Monday, okay? Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.